I think one of the most gut-wrenching experiences in this life is having to leave someone that we love. You drop your family off at the airport, you drive one of your kids to college, you watch your son and daughter go off to their first day of school, you leave them and there is an ache in your heart because we don't want to leave the presence of the one that we love. And I think that can give us a bit of context for understanding something of the heartache that the disciples were feeling in the upper room. Jesus acknowledges it. He says, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus told them that he was going away and where he was going, they couldn't go yet. And the disciples were now no doubt wondering if all the things that Jesus said about his Death, were they actually true? Maybe he's not speaking in figures of speech. Maybe he really is going to die. As as the kids say today, things got real. These were heartbroken, frightened, sorrow-filled men. And Jesus, in these chapters, is offering them comfort. And I think we can, we can identify with this. It's hard for us to live the Christian life without the physical presence of the Lord Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, it's hard not being able to see our Savior. And like these disciples, how often we find ourselves lonely, confused, lost, heartbroken, filled with sorrow, not really sensing the nearness of our Savior. Well, Jesus' comfort to the disciples is a comfort to us as well. He says, I have not left you as orphans. Even though he has gone away, he says, I will be with you by my spirit. He said, a little while, in a little while you will see me no longer, and yet in a little while you will see me. In 1416, Jesus said that he will ask the Father, and the Father will send another helper to be with us forever, another comforter, another advocate. And here Jesus is reinforcing what he said earlier and he's expanding on it. He's reminding us that everything we have in Jesus, we have in the Holy Spirit. He's telling us that the Holy Spirit has made God's presence among his people permanent. And that's why Jesus says here, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't, the Helper will not come. Everything we have in Jesus, we have in His Spirit. And one one writer likened this uh, chapter 16 to uh, uh, some steps in a spiral staircase. Jesus had already begun teaching about the Holy Spirit, but now he's, He's... 
taking us a little bit higher and giving us a broader perspective on the work of the Spirit. And in this passage before us, he's, he's really teaching two aspects of the ministry of the Spirit of truth to us. He says, the Holy Spirit will proceed from me and from my Father and will minister to the world. That's what we're going to think about in this first service. And then in verses 12 to 15, he outlines the Spirit's ministry to the church. The Spirit's ministry to the world and the Spirit's ministry to the church. And I think this gets at an important question. How can we, as followers of Christ, how do we maintain a posture of hope when we look around at this world and we see only sin and rebellion and blasphemy, when the enemy seems to have the upper hand, how do we maintain hope? How do we believe that the Lord Jesus will have the victory and we will have the victory with Him? Well, the answer is the Spirit's ministry to the world. Now, this is, I think, a balance to some of the darker truths that we have uh, heard in recent weeks. Uh, Jesus has said, the world is going to hate us because it hated him first. He said that it could be so severe that the world will want to kill you, and they will think that is a good thing. If you read the book of Revelation, we have these dark pictures of how the whole world is under the sway of Satan, tormented, headed towards spiritual death in hell. But that doesn't mean that we lose hope. It doesn't mean that we are to withdraw from the world and give up. Jesus' words here should fill us with hope. Jesus' words here help us to avoid what I call the Hell in a handbasket mentality. Have you ever met someone like that? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And their whole outlook is dark. And the world's falling apart. And it's hard for them to see that Jesus is indeed at work in this world. Well, Jesus here reminds us that that is not the mentality of the Christian. He tells us that the Holy Spirit will minister to a lost world so that people might come to see their need for Christ and be saved. And this is, we'll think about this, but this should fill us with confidence. This promise of Jesus should fill us with hope and confidence. If you look at verses 8 to 11, we hear Jesus outline the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And what is Jesus referring to here? What's he talking about? The key statement is in verse 8. 
when He, the Holy Spirit, comes. And when did the Holy Spirit come? He came on the day of Pentecost. And it is interesting that Jesus, in just a few sentences, really gives us a snapshot of what happened at Pentecost. And if we can understand how the Spirit's ministry unfolded on the day of Pentecost, then I think we have a picture of what the Holy Spirit is always doing in the world. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, He worked by and with the Word of God as it was proclaimed to convict sinners and bring them to Christ. The word uh, convict that Jesus uses here means to uh, prove guilty. To show people that they are wrong and to show them the right way. And what does the Holy Spirit then convict the world of? Well, Jesus says concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus said first that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost to those who heard Peter's sermon. And that's what has happened to every true believer in the history of the world. We are convicted of our sin, specifically our sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Peter preached on that day and the Holy Spirit worked, those people discovered that they were sinners, that they had rejected God's Son. And what happened? They were cut to the heart. In other words, they were convicted of their sin. And again, this is the first thing that the Holy Spirit shows us. In our salvation, what does He show us? We are sinners. The Holy Spirit's ministry to the world is to reverse our self-estimate of ourselves. And it's fascinating that we live in a culture that is always saying that everyone's problem is that they have a low self-esteem. And yet you look at the polls that are given and it really doesn't reflect that. People actually have very high self-esteem. The problem is not that we think too little of ourselves, the problem is that we think too much of ourselves. And when we think too much of ourselves, we will never see the need for a Savior. If we think we're great, we see no need for a great Savior. And the Holy Spirit graciously reverses our self-estimate of ourselves. And He comes and He teaches us that we have dethroned God and we have committed the ultimate blasphemy of putting ourselves in the place of God. 
It's an awful discovery to make, and yet it's a discovery that must be made if we are going to trust Jesus and grow in Him. And with each of these things Jesus says, there's sort of a, a double edge to it. Uh, while the Spirit is, on the one hand, <coughs> convicting the world of their sin and their guilt, the Spirit at the same time points people to Jesus Christ as the one who has paid the penalty for sin. The one who has bore that guilt and removed it by His death. You see this double-edged, the, the Spirit wounds with the aim of healing. He'll convict the world of sin, but secondly, Jesus says the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Now Jesus is, is indicating here that the Holy Spirit will show how the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was a kind of vindication of Jesus' life and ministry and His words. That His resurrection declared that He was the sinless, righteous Son of the living God. His resurrection declared that His work was accepted by His Father. This is what Paul says in the opening of the book of Romans. He says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, we see this same thing on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached from Psalm 16, Psalm 110, and Psalm 16 is specifically about the resurrection of Jesus. And he showed them how the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus declared that he was righteous. The resurrection declared that Jesus was in the right and they were in the wrong. Listen to Acts 2, 32-38. After expounding on Psalm 16, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit, through the word preached, convicted that crowd that Christ was righteous and they were not. And therefore, they had the sense that they stood in need of a righteousness not their own. A righteousness come from God, a righteousness that would come by faith. Again, here is that double-edged sword. While convicting the world of its unrighteousness, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus as the true and only source of righteousness. That alien righteousness that comes from God, that is attained not by works, but by faith. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness. And then said Jesus concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now Jesus is again here uh, alluding to how the Holy Spirit would convince the world that they are in the wrong and Jesus is in the right. More specifically, that they are actually in league with Satan. At the cross, Satan was judged. That is where Genesis 3.15, where Jesus crushed the head of the serpent, and all who belong to him, they too are under the judgment of God. And if you read the gospel, it's worth gospels, it's worth noting how Jesus is repeatedly accused of what? Of being in league with Satan. You have a demon. You are of Beelzebub. And they judged him and they said, you should be put to death. You're on the wrong side here. How do we reverse? How do we change people's minds who who have such a twisted view of who Jesus is? Well, the answer is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Only he can show them that they are of their father, the devil. That they belong to Satan and therefore they need to be delivered from that bondage. And again, the positive side of this is that the Holy Spirit, while showing the world that they are on the wrong side, that they are in league with Satan, that they face judgment, the Spirit at the same time shows how Christ Jesus Christ defeated Satan at the cross. That he quenched the righteous judgment of God upon that cross. And assures people that all who trust in him can have the hope of salvation. The Holy Spirit wounds and then provides the remedy in Christ. Now, what are the implications for us? Uh, How do we need to think about these things? How can we uh, let them fill us with hope? I think, first of all, today, if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way, 
If you have never truly trusted in him, know that today you are right now experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is saying, if you have not trusted in God's only Son, He's declaring to you that you are a sinner. He is convincing you of your sin, specifically your sin of not believing in Jesus. He's convicting you concerning righteousness, showing that you do not have in yourself the righteousness needed to go before a holy God. And He's convicting you concerning judgment. That if you are not in Christ, then you remain under the just judgment and wrath of the living God. And yet in all of this is a gracious call to be delivered in Jesus Christ, to trust Him. Jesus is the remedy for these things. He is the one who has died for the sins of His people, who removes its penalty and removes its guilt by His very own blood. And as He convicts you of your lack of righteousness, He says, look to Me. Trust in My righteousness, a perfect righteousness rendered for His people that would be credited to you by faith. And Jesus, though He says, if you have not trusted Me, you are under the judgment of God. He says, I am the remedy for that. I have borne the just wrath of God for sinners. Come to Me. Trust in Me. Be delivered. And if that's you today, I I want you to sense the urgency of your need to be in Jesus Christ, to trust Him today. But if you are in Christ, there are some very helpful implications for us. And I think this has implications for how we look at our evangelism. I think too often we look at our evangelism from a worldly uh, human point of view. We think the good evangelists, who are the good evangelists? Well, they're, they're the articulate people. They're the people who are, are maybe gifted in argumentation, who can present the clearest case. Every Christian, young and old, child, adult, can evangelize. And we can evangelize with confidence Because we don't have to be the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do the work of the Holy Spirit. You can simply stumble over your words and tell people about Jesus. And trust, at a seminary professor that would use the example, he said, it's like you, you put a pea into a gun and the Holy Spirit will make it a powerful bullet to transform people. Let that fill you with confidence. But it also, I think, has implications for our methodology. Our methodology and our families, first of all. 
for parents. I think so often we want to do the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of our kids or our spouses. And what happens when we do that? It never turns out well, does it? We end up becoming impatient and harsh and we do the opposite of what the Spirit would do. When it comes to our kids, it comes to our spouse, it reminds us that the Holy Spirit is the one who will work in them. For our kids, we need to simply teach them about Jesus. We need to offer them gentle correction, gentle discipline. We need to bear with our spouses and their weakness and their sin and trust that the Holy Spirit loves them more than we do and is more powerful than we do. But it also has implications for our worship. I think we can often think that our our worship is something we do here and it's got no real impact on the world. I mean, who in the world knows what we're doing right now? The people next door probably don't even really know what we're doing. And yet, the Scripture teaches us that our worship and our gathering and our life as a local body of believers is key to reaching a lost world. And the key to reaching the lost world is to remain different than the world. It is, it's nothing less than a tragedy today when we see churches trying to become like the world. That doesn't convict the world of anything. It vindicates the world. You want to be like us. We must be doing something right. When the church adopts the world's methodology, she she ceases to shine the light of Christ because she is abandoning the very things through which the Holy Spirit said, I will work. So much of what we see today is a simple lack of belief in what Jesus is teaching here. How how can we be confident that in our very simple, very ordinary worship, in our worship out of a warehouse, that it's going to make any difference? It's because it's not up to us. It's because it's the work of the Holy Spirit You can say, how how do you expect people to grow when your worship is so simple and you're meeting here? You can tell them, well, we are charismatics because we believe the Spirit works. And that means those simple things the Lord has given to us, the Word, the sacraments, our, our gathering together, that these are ordinary means of salvation. That is why the the Reformed Confessions, talking about their life in the church, that being under the means of grace, that is the ordinary means of salvation. Uh, My professor, preaching professor, had a definition of our preaching, and 
And two of the key components was it is to convert sinners and sanctify saints and prepare them for heaven. And what did we see happen at the day of Pentecost? We saw those people come to know Jesus through the ministry of the preaching of the word and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And even with the the sacraments, we're going to come to the Lord's table and, and we're told that as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. And we proclaim it to each other here and we're encouraged in Christ and in the gospel, but have you ever thought about how our observance of the Lord's Supper, some 2,000 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, our observance of the Lord's Supper is a quiet but powerful declaration to the world that Jesus is risen, that He is the righteous one, that He has been vindicated, that He is enthroned. As ordinary as it may seem, our simple worship here is a powerful witness to the world. And we we need to remember that our methodology is determined by the Lord. The Lord says, do these simple things. And I think, as as I've reflected on it throughout the years, why, why is it all so simple? Well, it's so when there's a powerful work of the Spirit, we don't say, well, it's because we did X, Y, and Z. And we can say to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us in this world without hope. Lord, we pray that you might give us hope. Lord, that we might be filled with confidence, not because of our own abilities, but because of the work of your spirit in us and in your church. Lord, make us faithful witnesses. May we trust in the work of your Holy Spirit and and the lives of unbelievers and, and the lives of those that we love. Lord, simply help us to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And Lord, we pray that those who are living in rebellion against the King Jesus, that they might come to bow before him and know his grace and his mercy. We pray that it might be for your glory, and we ask in Jesus' name.